0: is trying to live a very ordinary life in a usual manner in an out-of-the-way place. And he's actually doing quite well at it. He's been doing well at it for decades. He's working hard to be a plain, unremarkable shepherd caring for an average flock of undistinguished sheep. He's trying to lead them to a commonplace destination. Little green grass, a rivulet of water. Now it's true that his past is tinged by the miraculous. He learned the story at his mother's knee, and she certainly believed that it was a miracle. Amidst a program of ethnic cleansing, she sets him afloat in a papyrus basket daubed with a little pitch. Floating among the reeds, he is discovered and adopted and named by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, Moses, the drawn-out one, the one drawn out of water, becomes the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Destined by the Pharaoh for death, he is rescued by God for life. It is an extraordinary story, and long ago he... Had thought it a miracle but the one time he took the initiative to help relieve the suffering of his people it did not turn out so well and he found himself royal son of the Pharaoh fleeing that Pharaoh's death threat and so it is that he finds himself in Midian drawing water for a few maidens, accepting the hospitality of a desert chieftain, marrying one of his daughters, celebrating the birth of his children, caring for his father-in-law's sheep. There, there in Midian, Moses awakens to the bliss of the usual, the ecstasy of the everyday, the happiness of the habitual, the comfort of the accustomed, and the relief of the routine. Moses, the one drawn out, becomes withdrawn, and that is the way he intends it to be for the foreseeable future in perpetuity. Now, there's no crime in the common, is there? Uh, There's no fault in being a follower rather than a leader. There's no problem with being plain, ordinary, and unremarkable, unless, that is, God intends something different. And I've been feeling it in my bones. I don't know about you. God is calling the members and friends of the Calamasa Seventh-day Adventist Church and the students, faculty, and staff of a place like Walla Walla University to excellence, to leadership, on the frontiers of faith and mission. And so it is with Moses. He's enjoying the mundane in Midian, but behind the scenes, unknown to him, out of his consciousness, God is at work. Exodus chapter two, verses 23 through 25 is a a pivotal passage in our story. It reads like this, Exodus two, 23 through 25. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. When God hears... When God remembers, when God looks down upon, when God takes notice, God acts. Have you noticed? And when God acts, he often uses a pivotal, a pivotal person. When God would lead a people out of slavery, he seeks a leader. When he begins to deliver, he commissions a deliverer. And Moses, unknowing and unsuspecting, is keeping his father-in-law Jethro's flock. Already, though, he's... He's being led by God. Moses is drawn further and further from Midian, deep into what we now call the Sinai Peninsula. There there just doesn't seem to be any grass for the flock, and so he goes further and further. He eventually finds himself at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Now, Moses knows nothing of this place. Nothing has happened here yet. The Bible says he led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to horeb the mountain of god chapter 3 verse 1 here one day the multitudes of israel will gather here the lightning will crackle and the thunder will roar the mountain will shake with the very power of god from this place will come divine revelation. The eternal truths of the Ten Commandments will issue from this mountain. The whole system of law that will shape Israel's future will come from right here. But Moses thinks he's here by happenstance, by chance, through the vagaries of weather and drought. But his itinerary is actually controlled by God. God... The God who inhabits eternity, the God who knows the future, the God who knows what will unfold on this mountain has brought him to this very place for a specific purpose. The future fires on this mountain will be grand, pyrotechnic shows, but for now, God lights a, a little fire, though an intriguing one. God sets a bush ablaze, But the bush is not consumed, and right on cue, Moses investigates the oddity. God calls out to him from that burning bush, Moses, Moses, and and Moses, his pulse quickening, the furrows of his brow rising in bewilderment, answers, Here I am. Yes, I, I am the one. You're right. I'm Moses. Come, No closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Presumably, Moses obeys those instructions, and God continues offering to Moses the divine manifestation. Exodus 3, verse 6. He said further, I am the God of your Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Every true calling begins like that, don't you think? Every genuine commission by God begins right there, face to the ground, awe stricken by the sense of God's presence, miniaturized by God's majesty. Moses' commission comes while he is at worship. God says, I have observed the misery of my people, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses offers the first of four excuses. Verse 11, Exodus 3. But Moses said to God, Who am I that, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses feels utterly insufficient in the face of that grand mission. You've got the wrong person. I don't have the right resume for this job. Why me? I'm not up to the task, I'm wholly inadequate. Now, of all of his four excuses, this one is surely the most appropriate, don't you think? Lost in the majesty and wonder of God, Moses feels his own littleness and he expresses those feelings. Notice God's answer in verse 12. He begins with the divine affirmation, I will be with you. Now nothing else really matters, does it? Once you've heard the divine affirmation, I will be with you, every doubt should evaporate, every fear disappear. The Lord of the cosmos, he who rules galaxies as thick in the universe as blades of grass in a field, pledges himself to you, promises to be with you. Whatever he asks you to do, however bizarre it sounds, is actually and totally achievable because. He himself will do it. He will be present. He'll work in you, through you, for you, alongside you. Whatever he asks you to accomplish is as good as done. Now in his response to Moses, God adds a future sign. You will know it is all true, Moses, by this. You shall indeed lead Israel out out of Egypt, and you shall worship me right here, on this mountain." And now Moses scrambles for a second excuse. He comes up with this one, verse 13. What if I do as you say? What what if I go to the Israelites and announce, the God of your ancestors has sent me? And what if they respond, well then, what is his name? What shall I say then? God responds, renewing and expanding the divine manifestation in verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus shall you say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. the divine manifestation. My friend and predecessor, Dr. John Dibdahl, whose recent death we mourn, offers this comment on Exodus chapter three and its divine manifestation. I quote, this chapter, epitomized by this wonderful name, summarizes what the God of the Old Testament is like and what he proposes to do. In many ways, these few verses are the theological center of Exodus and indeed of the entire Old Testament. The God revealed here is intensely personal, savingly active, intent on self-revelation, close to his people, unquote. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continues, Exodus 3, verses 16 through 22, casting the vision of Moses' mission in the form of prophecy. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and deliver my message. They will listen to you. Together you will go to the king of Egypt. He won't listen to you until I've performed my wonders, but he will let you go eventually. When you leave Egypt, they will pay you handsomely to depart. Now, note that God has just prophesied that the elders of Israel will listen to him. Still, Moses generates another, a third excuse. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses expresses his fear of being rebuffed by the very people to whom he's being sent. He's afraid of his credibility being questioned, he's afraid of rejection, the excuse is rooted in a lack of belief in God's prophecy and God's promise, yet God patiently answers, offering, chapter 4, verse 2, the divine interrogation. What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. My shepherd's crook. Plain old stick. You can see that I've whittled it here and sculpted it there. Every spring in Midian I carve a little, a little notch right down here, 40 notches. I can hardly believe it. Its handle is worn smooth over the years with my favorite grip. I've walked many a mile with this stick. With it I've crossed many a desert. I've climbed many a rocky crag. What's in my hand? Well, it's just my stick, my old Walking stick. Chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. And he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. One moment, it is his staff. In the next, it becomes a writhing, angry, lethal snake. And in still another moment, it's his old stick again, his same old staff, the same whittled places, the same worn grip, the same engravings of his wife's name, Zipporah, and his son's names, Gershon and Eliezer, and their dates of birth. The divine interrogation comes to you, my friend and colleague in faith. What is that in your hand? If we jump ahead in our story to chapter 4, verse 17, we read this, God's final word of commission to Moses. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Now, if Moses had wished, he could have made a little something of this, don't you think? He's being asked to confront the mightiest empire on the planet, He grew up there, is trained in the Egyptian art of warfare. He knows its military industrial capabilities. He knows its temples are emblazoned with the engraved records of the many victories won. Those reliefs, he knows, show prancing chariots, prancing horses, decorated chariots, gilt chariots, every bit as effective as they are stunning. He knows that he leaves Midian to confront the sophisticated weaponry of Egypt armed with a stick. Could have made something of that, don't you think? The divine interrogation, what is that in your hand ringing in his ears? What's in your hand? You see, the task at hand seems to dwarf what is in hand. I offer one little illustration from Seventh-day Adventist church history. Uh, The year is 1894, Ellen White, her son Willie, and some Seventh-day Adventist leaders are ministering in Australia. Seventh-day Adventists, there are being persecuted for their Sabbath-keeping, they're losing jobs, they're losing homes, they need places to live, they need land to farm. And as these Seventh-day Adventist leaders look ahead, they know that a school is needed. And so they pray, they dare, and they dream. They become convicted that they must find and purchase a large tract of land, 1,000 to 2,000 acres in size. On May 16, Willie White writes to a friend back in the United States, and I quote, we are planning to buy a large tract of land, and we can scarcely get enough money to go and see it. (laughs) What's that in your hand? Half a train fare. <laughs> the task at hand seems to dwarf the resources in hand, but that little band of Adventists knows something. What is in your hand is not as important as to whom it belongs. And in a rather short time, they have purchased 1,500 acres for Avondale and paid the king's ransom of U.S. $4,500 that it cost. Wow, wow. The stick, the staff, the rod, the partial train fare you see become symbols, signs, pointing beyond themselves to something far more important and significant. In the Bible, the rod symbolizes royalty, power, and authority, a special kind of rod, a scepter, was part of Pharaoh's garb, part of his essential equipment. Moses' rod becomes his scepter, even God's scepter, which he wields in the presence of Pharaoh who could not have missed the meaning. That plain old stick points beyond to the very authority and power of God. It is a visible, tangible sign of God's presence in the work of Moses. So God takes the stick of Moses, turns it into a snake, turns it back into a stick. What really matters is, is not the scepter in the hand of Pharaoh, symbolizing the power and might of the empire of Egypt. What matters is not the golden cobra poised on his forehead, a sign of Pharaoh's might and magic. What matters is a stick in the hand of a shepherd from Midian. God, you will recall, is answering Moses' third excuse. Suppose they don't believe me. Suppose they say, the Lord did not appear to you. So God gives Moses the sign of the staff and two more, the sign of the leprous hand and the sign of water from the Nile becoming blood. Now, we might wish that Moses would finally cave, would accept God's call. We could wish that he, he acts like Isaiah and, and responds, oh, Lord, send me. But he doesn't. He offers another excuse in Exodus 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, to which God responds in verses 11 and 12. Who is it that gives speech to mortals? (laughs) Who believes, who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. Moses is out of excuses. God's answered them all clearly, decisively. Moses can no longer avoid God's call. Nevertheless, he lamely offers a final plea. Verse 13, but he said, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Is mine the only name on the list? Have you thought about Mary, Bill, or Sue? Isn't someone else available? Moses uses the same deferential speech he's used before, but beneath the polite veneer is open defiance. God has answered his excuses. He fails to accept God's commission. He's crossed the boundary between humility and disobedience. Though his anger is kindled, God accommodates Moses. He agrees to send his brother Aaron along as his spokesman, and God concludes the conversation with this final command Chapter 4, verse 17, Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. And to Moses' credit, he finally, even belatedly, accepts the challenge, the call, and the commission. Members and friends of the Calamasa Seventh-day Adventist Church, To you comes the divine manifestation, I am who I am. I am has sent you. To you comes the divine affirmation, I am with you. And to you comes the divine interrogation, what is that in your hand? Some time ago, a seminary professor here in the United States overhears two students talking. One of the students has received a call to pastor a church that he believes is beneath his personal qualities. (laughs) So he's complaining about it, and the other student, a woman, responds, you know, the world's a better place because Michelangelo didn't say, I don't do ceilings. And the seminary professor, overhearing this little exchange, goes back to his office and pins some words, some of which I'll share with you. The world's a better place because a German monk named Martin Luther did not say, I don't do doors. (laughs) The world's a better place because an Oxford Don named John Wesley didn't say, I don't do preaching in fields. We Seventh day Adventists could add some things in here like, the world's a better place because a young 16 year old girl named Ellen Harmon didn't say, I don't do visions. Uh, indeed, indeed. as we move on through the, the seminary professor's list, the world's a better place because John didn't say, I don't do deserts. The world's a better place because Mary didn't say, I don't do virgin births. The world's a better place because Paul didn't say, I don't do correspondence. The world's a better place because Mary Magdalene didn't say, I don't do feet. And yes, the world's a better place because Moses in the end didn't say, I don't do pharaohs or mass migrations. The world is a better place because Jesus didn't say, I don't do crosses. And the world will be a better place only if you and I don't say, I don't do. Instead, inspired by the divine manifestation, invigorated by the divine affirmation, and instructed by the divine interrogation, realize that what is in your hand is the stuff of miracles. Amen and amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we have listened to the divine manifestation. I am who I am. I am has sent you. We've heard the divine affirmation. I am with you. We've experienced the divine interrogation. What is that in your hand? As we move into this week, as we face the challenges before us, let us do so with those divine words ringing in our hearts and in our minds with the sure knowledge that we are seated in heavenly places undefeated with the one who has conquered it all. In Jesus' name, amen.